one of my favorite books is a book called Keeping the Heart, and it's by a guy named John Flavel, or some say Flavel, I'm not really sure what's the correct pronunciation, but I try to read it almost every year. It's a book that I just keep circling back around to, and I do that because it's so helpful, and it's so central to the Christian life, keeping the heart. Keep the heart with all, keep your heart with all vigilant. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is what we're told in Proverbs. And not much could be more important, not much could be more central than to keep the source of water clean. If the spring gets polluted, then guess what happens to everybody who is drinking from that spring? They get sick. This verse is telling us that our heart is like a spring. From it flow the springs of life. From your heart comes that spring. And so we want to make sure that our hearts are with God. Oriented toward God. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. As... Flavel begins his work. He says very early on, the greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Before conversion, before somebody comes to trust in Christ Jesus, the biggest problem that needs to be overcome, the greatest difficulty that needs to be overcome, and in fact the most monumental task, is to get that person's heart won over to God. So that they come to repent of their sins, to trust in Him, to turn away from whatever else has their heart to God. The greatest difficulty after conversion, after a person in the first place, trusts in Jesus, repents of their sin, turns away from their sin and towards Him. The greatest difficulty after that has taken place in the beginning of the Christian life is to keep the heart with God. This is what Flavel says at the outset of his book. Why is this, we might ask? Why is it so hard to win the heart to God in the first place? And after that heart has been won to God in the first place, why is it so hard to keep the heart with God? Is it a deficiency in God? No. Rather, it's a deficiency in us. The fall corrupted our natures. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and rebelled against God. More properly, I should say, when Adam sinned in the garden and rebelled against God. Not only did he plunge himself and everybody whom he represented, God had appointed him as a representative of the human race, as a covenantal head. When he rebelled against God in the garden, not only did he plunge himself and everybody whom he represented into guilt, such that we became guilty of sin, 
He also plunged us into corruption. Such that everyone from that point on, himself, his wife, and everyone who would be born, covenantally represented by him, namely the whole human race, was born corrupt. Sin corrupted our nature as a human race. In fact, it corrupted the nature of everything. I want to introduce you to a word that largely encapsulates the effect of the fall on the nature of things, generally. And that word is entropy. The dictionary defines entropy as a process of degradation or running down or a trend to disorder. This is what entropy is. You say a building is run down. It's run down because entropy has taken its course. Our bodies don't last forever, do they? Even if somebody lives to 110, clearly they're not in the same state at 110 as they were at 20 or 30. There has been a degradation. We see this with geographical features. Even uh, big masses of rock can be worn and their shape can change over a long enough period just by the effect of erosion and things like this. All of this is entropy, a process of degradation or running down or a trend to disorder. There is a mathematician named J.R. Newman whom the dictionary cites, and that's where I got this quote actually, but it's a great quote. Entropy is the general trend of the universe toward death and disorder. Entropy is the general trend of the universe towards death and disorder. And that's an effect of Adam's sin. There is now operative in this world a general trend toward death and disorder. Entropy. Everything tends toward entropy if uncultivated, said one author whose name I cannot recall or source for the life of me. But I remember it word for word. Somewhere I read, everything tends toward entropy if, if uncultivated. So let me introduce you to another word now. And that word is watchfulness. Watchfulness is essentially the cultivation of your spiritual life so as to avoid entropy in your spiritual life. That's what watchfulness is. Everything tends toward entropy if uncultivated. So what should we do then? Cultivate. Cultivate your garden so it's not overrun with weeds. Cultivate your house, sweeping, cleaning, tidying, so that you're not overrun with dust and mold and bacteria. Cultivate also your soul, so that it doesn't tend toward death and disorder, like it would if you did not cultivate. Entropy is at work everywhere that cultivation is not happening. And so watchfulness is the cultivation of our souls, the cultivation of our spiritual lives. The greatest difficulty before conversion is to keep the heart 
or is to win the heart to God. Why? Because entropy set in and our hearts are bent away from God. And nothing but the Spirit of God can win us to God in the first place. The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Why? Because though we have been made new, though we have been reconciled to God, though we have been justified by grace, through faith, entropy is still operative in our spiritual lives. And what is the remedy then? Watchfulness. Having come to Christ in the first place, because of the drawing power of the Spirit working upon you, renewing your nature such that you hate your sin and love Christ Jesus and no longer want to run from Him, but you want to run toward Him, to trust Him, to obey Him. That having happened in your soul, now be watchful. Otherwise, entropy will set in, Christian. Watchfulness is the opposite of a laissez-faire approach to one's inner life. Brian Hedges, in his book, Watchfulness, which is a fantastic read. You can purchase it on Kindle or uh, whatever e-reader you use. Watchfulness is the opposite of a laissez-faire approach to one's inner life, Hedges says. Hedges goes on to say that it involves searching your soul, examining your behavior, taking account of your thoughts, words, motives, and actions. We might say looking, noticing, paying attention to inward dynamics with a view to addressing them. Hedges says, if you don't do these sorts of things, you're not watchful. Furthermore, Hedges asserts that if you only do these sorts of things the way that you do laundry, say, once or twice a week, then you're not watchful. Watchfulness is not haphazard. The watchful believer never takes a day off. And that's the reason why it's the hardest thing to keep our hearts with God. Because the constant, relentless effect of entropy on our lives means that there needs to be a constant, relentless watchfulness over our souls. The second that you stop being watchful, entropy sets in. The second that you stop pulling weeds, they begin to grow. The second that you stop removing dust from your house, it begins to accumulate. The second that you stop being watchful over your soul, entropy sets in there, in the inner man. When we lived in Canada, my little sons and I would take a trip sometimes on a cold winter day when, in my opinion, it's much too cold to be outside. We'd go to the mall and we'd go to one of two malls usually, a shopping mall, either Malvern Mall or Cedarbrae Mall, both in Scarborough. And... 
At times we'd go to one, at times we'd go to the other. But one factor that was often the deciding factor in choosing where we'd go is that Cedar Bray Mall had moving stairs. You know what moving stairs are? An escalator. And Max loved to go on the moving stairs. And so if I said, should we go to Malvern Mall or should we go to Cedar Bray Mall? Just killing some time, getting out of the house, giving mommy a break on a cold winter day. The answer was often Cedar Bray Mall. Why? Because I want to go on the moving stairs. Watchfulness is like walking upstairs that are moving down. We all know if you go up fast enough, you can make it to the top. But the second that you stop walking, what happens? You start going down. To watch then is not only to be careful, but to be persistently careful. Hedges. We must be relentlessly careful. We must be ceaselessly diligent. We can never stop being watchful because the second that we stop walking up the stairs, those moving stairs are bringing us back down. Entropy is at work. So I've laid out now the concept of watchfulness based on Proverbs 4.23. Keep the heart, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. This is what we should be doing. Being watchful, being careful with our hearts. But is watchfulness itself a biblical word? Clearly it's a biblical concept. But is it a biblical word? Yes, it is. And very much so. In fact, there are several passages where it occurs explicitly. And so in further defining what watchfulness is in trying to get some more practical guidance as to how we can be watchful. Let's consider a number of those passages now. And there are at least 13 passages where the word watch is used in the sense that we're talking about today. And so for ease of reference, I'm going to group them together into two categories of watchfulness passages. The first category is watchfulness over yourself. And the second category is watchfulness within the church. So let's begin with the watchfulness over yourself passages. Let's start with 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Here we read this. In closing his letter to the Corinthians... Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. This doesn't tell us exactly what watchfulness is. There's some assumption that the Corinthians have some familiarity with the concept of watchfulness. Just as at this juncture, I could assume you have some familiarity with the concept of watchfulness. At this point, I could stop and say, be watchful, and you'd have some idea what I'm talking about. 
It seems that that's what's happening here. Paul is just reminding them of a concept that he's already introduced. Be watchful. They understand in hearing that, okay, be careful over my spiritual life, lest entropy set in. But what is of note in furthering our definition of watchfulness is what Paul groups watchfulness together with. He says next, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Well, it might not be popular in our day and age to say that there's differences between men and women, but there are. And one of, one of the differences is a, a strength, a special strength that God has given to men. As I've said before, so I repeat again today, listen, there are women who could lift a lot more weight than me. Not all men are stronger than all women. Some of these Olympic weightlifters might have got a bronze medal in their event, but nevertheless, they could crush me. Generally, though, men are stronger. And God has given us the responsibility to use our strength for good. God has given us the responsibility to initiate and to be active, to to begin things. Not to just wait for things to happen, but to be assertive, to um, take the first step. All of these sorts of things. And in a strong way, bringing our strength to bear on whatever situation it is that we're coming to deal with. And doesn't that just fit what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13. Act like men is sandwiched between stand firm and be strong. Isn't that the image then that would fit in the middle there in that sandwich? And so Paul says stand firm, act like men, be strong. And together with those things he says be watchful. So we may extrapolate then that Paul envisions watchfulness as something that is very much in the same vein as standing firm. Something that is very much in the same vein as acting like men. Watchfulness is something that is very much in the same vein as being strong. So generally then, we need to infer that it is an active thing. It is something that we need to take the initiative to do. It's something that doesn't just happen to us, but it's something that we need to take some take an active role in pursuing. That's very much what Paul has in view about watchfulness as he writes this in closing in 1 Corinthians 16 and 13. Why is there such a need for strength, for firmness, for initiative, for courage, for activity in watchfulness? Turn with me to 1 Peter 5, 8.
Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So not only do we have the inward challenge of entropy happening, which is why we need to be watchful. Because the second that we stop being watchful, entropy is going to set in. We also need to be watchful because there is a conflict happening. There is a combat happening. We are in a war zone. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, I can bet that if we were walking along a path in another part of the world, and you said, how long is it going to take us to get where we're going? And I said, oh, about seven or eight minutes. We're walking along, having a nice conversation. And I said, oh, I should let you know. It's unlikely. But there are lions around here. And last year, a few people were attacked. So just bear that in mind. Well, let's continue on our way. You could bet that all of a sudden you would have a heightened watchfulness in a situation like that. Why? Not because, not because of what's happening inside of you. In other words, your senses are not heightened because you might have a tendency to fall asleep. In other words, you're not concerned about an inward process occurring, which propels you to be watchful. In the case I just described, you would be concerned about something external to you. And so what we see in the scripture is that not only do we have this problem of entropy within us, but we also have a conflict, a combat, a war happening all around us. We have an adversary who is like a lion, who is not just a sleeping lion in the middle of the day sunning himself after eating an antelope or whatever with a full tummy. We have a lion seeking someone to devour who is after us. Therefore, in addition to the entropy dynamic, be watchful because of the combat dynamic. Now you're starting to see why Paul says you got to act like men. You got to be strong. You got to stand firm as you are watchful. Because this is going to take some courage. This is going to take some strength. You need to make sure that you have that mindset of protectiveness. The way that a man ought to towards his wife, towards his children. If I drive home and I arrive late at night and I notice that the front door has been smashed in or pried open. I should not say, hey Wade, you're pretty brave. Why don't you run in there and check it out? He is brave. He has the heart of a lion. (laughs) But I still wouldn't be right to send him in there. Nor should I say, well, Mel, we're both adults here. And we live in a modern society. We're we're not old-fashioned. We're not 
bound by the traditions that want to keep women down? Don't we believe in equality? And so why don't you go in there and check it out? What, what ought to happen is that I ought to have a sense of protectiveness. That would be a manly response, would be to have a sense of protectiveness. And if anyone's going to go in there, as opposed to, say, phoning the police and waiting for some help, if anyone's going to go in there alone, it ought to be me. That would be a manly thing to do. We ought to have a manly protectiveness. Even if you're a woman, you ought to have a manly protectiveness over your soul. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Women, act like men in that sense. Be strong. All of these things are grouped together, remember, in a letter to the Corinthian believers. He doesn't say, man, may I address you for a moment. He writes to them all, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. He's not saying flatten out the differences. He's talking about in the grouping of things that I'm talking to you about, you need to have a manliness. So what does it look like? To be watchful, to stand firm, to act like men, to be strong. What does the conflict and the combat look like? Will we just one day see the devil peering out of a bush with the face of a lion? And we think, this is exactly what Peter warned me about. Or will it look like something else? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 6. Jesus said to them, that is his disciples, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In both of those passages, we see an injunction to watch. One is, watch yourself, lest you be tempted. In Matthew 16, it's watch out for the... Sadducees and the Pharisees. I think we all recognize that we ought to be watchful in terms of just engaging in open and obvious sin. If somebody tries to lure you to use illicit drugs or to visit a brothel or to steal money from your employer, I think we all realize that watchfulness obviously entails being careful against those sorts of things. But these two passages speak to subtleties. It's possible in dealing with someone else who has maybe fallen into an open sin. It's possible for ourselves to experience temptation in our own hearts. Now, 
some interpret Galatians 6, 1 to mean, be careful that you're not tempted to do the same sort of thing as you walk with someone through whatever it is that they have sinned in, and your, your mind is on theft because someone stole, and so maybe you're going to be tempted to say, well, you know what, hey, I can see where they made a mistake and got caught. You know what, I could probably do that and not get caught. Or the same with sexual sin or whatever. There, some understand Galatians 6.1 to be like, keep watch on yourself so that you may not be tempted in that way. But another way of understanding Galatians 6.1, and I think one that, that bears some merit, is to understand it as being watchful on ourselves not necessarily with respect to the type of sin that the person has committed whom we are seeking to restore, but other sorts of sins. Whatever sins we might be prone to. In fact, whatever sins we might be prone to by virtue of the process of trying to restore someone who has fallen into an open and obvious sin. Like not being gentle. See here it says... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so what might happen is one person robs a bank and everyone else in the church is like, we would never rob a bank. You are a lot less spiritual than we are. We are good people. You are not a good person. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like that person over there who has done such and such, whatever the case may be. And all of a sudden, we sound just like the Pharisee in Luke 18. And so, keep watch on yourself, not only that you might not fall into open sin, but that you might not be led astray by the subtleties of self-righteousness or pride or just whatever blindness to your own, or rationalizing your smaller sins, because at least you didn't do what that sister over there did, or at least you didn't do what that brother over there did, and so who cares if I spoke to my wife in a grumpy way, at least I didn't rob a bank. So keep watch, lest you too be tempted. There are subtleties that we might fall into, as well as obviously the dangers of open and obvious sins. Consider Matthew 16 and verse 6. Beware of, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember that these were well-respected Christian people. We tend to automatically be dismissive of Pharisees because we've been taught that, well, they were... The ones vying for Jesus' crucifixion. They were the ones who were rebuked by Jesus and so on and so forth. But remember that the people living at this time didn't have the benefit of reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in order to understand how they should feel about the Pharisees. And so here are these guys who are well-respected religious leaders. They are very disciplined. They have... Uh, knowledge of the words of the Bible. Many of them had large sections of the Old Testament or even the Old Testament, believe it or not, memorized. 
these guys were... It would be easy to perceive these guys as spiritual giants. And yet, as Jesus said to the Sadducees, they knew not the Scriptures. See, for all their learning of the words of the text, they had failed to understand the meaning of the text, and certainly they had failed to make application to themselves. Such that when the Messiah, foretold by the Old Testament, shows up, when, behold, the woman, the virgin, has conceived and brought forth a child, and the ruler is born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, when God raises up a prophet like Moses, nobody among the Pharisees and the Sadducees even recognizes him. There was a false doctrine, a wrong understanding, a blindness, even though they were church people. So look, be watchful not only about the open and obvious sins, be watchful of the unique ways that your heart might be tempted, even subtly. Beware of settling for being a respected churchgoer, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. Watch out for that leaven. Watch out for getting your doctrine wrong. Be watchful even as you read your Bible, lest you do it wrong. And be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who did not know the Scriptures and deluded themselves into a false religion. You see, it's not just obvious things that we need to be watchful about. It's subtle things as well. The Lord isn't, doesn't instruct us in the Scriptures merely Merely to watch over our actions and our words. But what does he say? Go back to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. Keep your heart. Keep your heart. So don't just settle for watching the outward things. Don't just settle for keeping your words and your actions on the straight and narrow path. Where is your heart? What's happening in your heart? What are the motions of your heart? Toward God? Away from God? Toward this particular sin or temptation? Away from this particular sin or temptation? Maybe you resisted something outwardly, but inwardly you know full well your heart veered towards that thing. Maybe for now you resisted the magnetic pull of that thing upon your heart. But even if you got away outwardly, you should have at least realized that there is something in you that is responsive to that magnetic pull. And that is something that you need to be aware of and be careful of and seek to address. It's not only open sin, but also subtleties that can get us. And God knows our hearts. Other people may not. 
you can deceive other people. But God knows our hearts. And so what uses it to even have a reputation of being a watchful person? In a healthy church. If you are not actually watchful. You get to the end of your life and they put you in a box and bring you up to the front of the church. And everybody says he was a diligent Christian. She was very watchful over her soul. I remember the many times she lamented over her sin. and She left us a wonderful example and so on and so forth. But you go and you stand before the Lord. Before whom all things are open. He knows all. He sees all. He perceives all. Be watchful all the way down to the heart. In fact, that's basically the definition of watchfulness. In, in some sense, it's actually an oxymoron to say that you're watchful about only your outward behaviors. Because that's actually that would actually be the opposite of what watchfulness is. It's not actually being very watchful at all. Because the spring is being polluted. And so it would be like a city saying, we take water quality seriously. We test everything that comes out of the taps on a regular basis. Well, do you test the source? No, no, no. We never test the source. If a problem arises, we'll see it. Well, a city like that actually doesn't take the water quality very seriously. They should be checking the source, checking the spring, checking the reservoirs. That's what it means to take water quality seriously. Likewise, to be watchful doesn't mean just waiting until weeds spring up and then being like, oh, well, I'll pull it, I guess. It means being proactive in the first place, not to allow things to grow and to bring forth fruit. Getting it at its first appearance, at its first sign. Again, this is hard. The hardest thing, right? That's what Val says. Because it's relentless. It's daily. It's constant. It's hourly. It's minutely. (laughs) How long do we need to do this? Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13. Jesus says in the context of his second coming, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. A parallel passage is Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. How long do we need to do this incessant, relentless work? Till Jesus comes. We gotta stay at it until Jesus comes. Again, we're going to need to stand firm then. We're going to need to act like men. We're going to need to be strong. 
we're in a war zone. How long do you need to fight until the war is over? Until the other side lays down its guns? You can't just say, time out. I'm tired. I've got to take a break. Until the other side lays down its weapons, you can't stop fighting. So as long as there's a roaring lion out there seeking whom he may devour, be watchful. How long do we need to do this? Until entropy is no longer at work. So how do we actually do it? In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Paul instructs Timothy, who was a pastor, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He writes this to a pastor, but will any of us say that we ought not to keep a close watch on ourselves and the teaching? I think we can see very easily that this is applicable to us as well. Keep your doctrine straight and keep your life straight. We talk about that a lot here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Ortho means straight, right? Like think of your teeth, orthodontics. Straight teeth. Orthodoxy means straight belief. Orthopraxy means straight practice. They need to go together. Keep a watch on yourself and on the teaching. You can keep a watch on the teaching without keeping a watch on yourself. That's what hypocrites do. They learn it as just a theological system. But they don't actually bring it to bear on their life. But you can't really keep a watch on yourself without keeping a watch on the teaching, can you? How can you live in a manner that pleases God if you don't understand what pleases God, for example? How can you lean in to the Holy Spirit if you're like those in the book of Acts who said, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit? How can you be transformed by the renewing of your minds without bringing the Scripture to bear on your minds? And therefore be transformed. So you can kind of keep a close watch on the teaching without watching yourself. But you can't really keep a watch on yourself without watching the teaching. And so they just go together. What do we mean then when we say keep a watch? Well, be in the book. Be careful to think about what the Bible says. What is true? What actually is the case? What does God say about this? What does God say about that? How does God's word bear upon whatever situation it is that I'm facing? How do I apply this in this particular case? What would it mean to do such and such, whatever's being commanded in Ephesians or in Second Peter or in Isaiah or whatever it is that you're reading? How does this apply to my life? What does this tell me about Christ? If I want to keep a close watch on myself so that my affections are burning hot for God. Who is God? As I watch the teaching closely, I have the opportunity also to bring that to bear and so watch my life closely. Frame your life according to God's word. Colossians 4 and verse 2. 
It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. What does it mean to be watchful in prayer? Certainly no less than continuing steadfastly in it, I presume. But could it be more than that? Last year, I prayed more than... Let me say this. Let me say this. I prayed more minutes than I ever prayed before. But one thing that I found was that the quality of my prayer actually did not noticeably increase. And many times I was trying to just discipline myself to pray more, which I don't think is a bad thing. I'm not advocating against even timing yourself and setting goals for yourself about how long you pray. I think that can be a healthy part of a disciplined life. But I think one ingredient that was largely missing from my prayer last year was being watchful in it. I was continuing steadfastly in it, but I don't think I was as watchful in it as I should have been. And so my heart was just all over the place. I, you know, I didn't, at times I didn't feel like praying. At times I, I was just so distracted, but I persevered and, you know, meeting my quota, so to speak. You know, well, I can't, I can't get up and give attention to that matter yet because I still have to pray for whatever, five more minutes or whatever the case may be. Instead of actually dealing with whatever the heart dynamics were that were maybe pulling me away from prayer or impeding the quality of my prayer. Oh Lord, why don't I feel like praying? Lamenting it. Lord, you can see I'm so distracted. I want to go, well not I want to go, but I have a sense that I have to go answer some emails. (laughs) Why can I not set that aside and focus on you? Why is my heart pulled to the busyness Instead of communing with you. What is more important this day than being here with you, Lord? Why the rush? Those kind of thoughts, that kind of lamenting, I think is what it means to be watchful. Or when we find our hearts not wanting to pray, instead of just being like, well, let me just do it anyway and get it over with. Meet my quota for the day. Check it off my list for the day. Instead of that, maybe calling out to the Lord, help me to think rightly about prayer. Help me to think rightly about my spiritual life. Help me to think rightly about priorities. Perhaps of the eternal versus the temporal. Perhaps of the greater joy of communing with God as opposed to the lesser joys that life here and now offers Then perhaps opening up the Word of God before we even get to praying to remind ourselves why we're praying. Why we should want to pray. Read something. Perhaps like, let us boldly then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That we might find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. For every priest, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, etc., etc. Listen, the point of that, the thought process of that is what is summarized in verse 15. Before what I began with, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And he's been appointed by God to appear before God on our behalf. Why not open the Bible to a passage like that when you don't feel like praying? And consider the privilege that we have to draw near to God through Christ Jesus. <clears throat> to consider that we are commanded to approach with confidence, boldly, because of this high priest. To consider the suitableness of the high priest. To linger, perhaps, in the end of Hebrews chapter 4 and in Hebrews chapter 5 thinking on the high priest and the privilege of access to God through him until we feel like praying. Maybe something like that is what it would look like to be watchful. I can only really give you examples because the very nature of it is not formulaic. I can't tell you, well, this is what it is to be watchful. When X happens, plug in this value for the variable Y... And then multiply that by the variable Z, and then divide that by B, subtract C, and that's what you should do. That's not how watchfulness works. Watchfulness simply recognizes that entropy is at play. Watchfulness recognizes that when you stop walking up the escalator, the stairs are moving down. Watchfulness recognizes that if you're not paying attention, there is a roaring lion who would be glad to devour you. Watchfulness recognizes the principles that are at play and then takes initiative and action and effort to make sure that our hearts get with God and stay with God on a daily basis. Second John 1 and verse 8 speaks about being watchful until the end, until Christ returns again. It says, watch yourselves, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And here again, there's an imperative to watch ourselves, but there is the encouragement here. That having watched ourselves, there will be a full reward at the end. It's not going to be in vain. Now, here we have to be clear. The way that you win the heart, the way that the heart is won to God in the first place, is by the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, as Second Corinthians talks about. Shining in our hearts to help us see the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
which otherwise we would not have seen because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no taste for Christ Jesus, for spiritual things. But by God's grace, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. And the gospel in the first place that we believed isn't that now we have a second chance to try harder and to do better. That's not the gospel. The gospel that we believed is, I have no hope apart from Christ. I have no righteousness of my own to bring. I can't plead anything I've done. I just have to throw myself on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. And trust that he who promised is faithful. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I trust that Jesus lived righteously for me. And I trust that Jesus received in himself on the cross the punishment that really and truly I deserved for my sin. The wrath of God was poured out on him in my place. And so I trust in what Jesus did, not what I've done. And it's by believing that we come into right relationship with God in the first place. It's by believing in the gospel. Now, here's a subtle thing that happens sometimes. We believe that in the first place, but then we start to think that our consistency in our devotions is the righteousness that we bring to God. Or we start thinking that our watchfulness is our righteousness that we bring to God. Listen, the reward that comes at the end isn't because of your works. You don't merit the reward at the end because of your works. You don't get to heaven and say, I deserve eternal life. I deserve to live with you forever because look at how strong my faith is. You don't get there at the end and say, look at how thorough my repentance. You don't get there at the end and say, look how consistent my devotional life. You don't get there at the end and say, look how watchful I was. That's not how the gospel works. All the way through, as we are being watchful, we are being watchful in a gospel context. We are being watchful, in fact, to remember the gospel context instead of to forget it. If I'm not watchful, I might begin trusting in myself. If I'm not watchful, I might actually start thinking that I'm a pretty good person. If I'm not watchful, I might get self-righteous and proud toward others who might not have attained the same standard as I have. If I'm not watchful, I may forget the true gospel and substitute a false line like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Remember, watch and beware of that leaven. The reward that's coming at the end ultimately is because of Christ's work and not ours. We get into heaven. We have eternal life together with God in a renewed heavens and earth. Because of what Christ Jesus has done. It's his work for us as individuals which saves us as individuals. And it's his work on behalf of the human race as the second Adam. Another representative that has broken the curse that was upon this earth.
In Genesis 3, God said, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. It's as if, in the end of all things, when God makes all things new, and we live together with God in the new heavens and earth, it's as if the Father could turn to the Son and say, uncursed is the ground now because of you. Christ Jesus has won it for us. It's within that gospel context that we labor, trusting in Him, seeking to love Him, seeking to keep our hearts toward Him. It's in that gospel context that we labor. There are, I believe, other rewards. And some of those God has graciously promised to give us for the things that we have actually done. So God is gracious to give us a great salvation on the basis of someone else. Give us grace to make us what we are. Give us grace to help us do what we do. And then give us more grace by rewarding what He's helped us do. Grace, grace, grace. We need to be watchful for all of the reasons that I've unfolded in this sermon today. But we need to be watchful within a gospel context. Remembering grace. In fact, being watchful to remember grace. Don't lose that. Let me finish up briefly by just touching on the second category of watchfulness passages. And that's watchfulness over others. Watchfulness within the church. In Hebrews chapter 13... And verse 17, the author writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That passage tells me, at least, that I'm keeping watch over your souls and that I'm going to have to give an account. But is it just pastors and leaders that need to keep watch over others? No, it's not. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. This tells us that we all, remember, I appeal to you, brothers. Not I appeal to you, pastors, deacons. I appeal to you, brothers. Be watchful in church life. Be watchful what happens in church life. Particularly here, it's divisions and false doctrines. Be watchful, though, the broader principle could apply. Be watchful over your church life. Be watchful about the dynamics within the congregation. Be watchful not only in your individual lives, but be watchful in your life together. In Galatians 5 and 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And whether it's things from the outside coming in, false doctrines creeping in here, or whether it's our own sins coming up and affecting one another, we've got to be watchful over our community life as well. We are to be like watchmen. In Ezekiel 33, 
God says this to the prophet. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Now that's contextual, obviously. That's God speaking to Ezekiel particularly. But I think we can understand that concept of the watchman. Security guards, night watchmen, even in our context, our day and age. This is the mindset that we ought to have over our own souls, but also over our church life. We can't fall asleep. We can't drowse. We can't doze. We can't sit there and lean back in our chair and feel our eyes getting heavy and think to ourselves, well, it will probably be (laughs) alright. Entropy and the enemy's cannons preclude that from being an appropriate course of action. So within a gospel context, would we all watch carefully over our own hearts as individuals? But would we also see ourselves as watchmen? All standing, for example, around the walls of this church, so to speak. If you see a problem, you call out to me. If I see a problem, I'll call out to you. No one of us can see everything. In fact, even all of us together can't see everything. But all of us together can see more than any one of us individually could see. So let's work together for all the reasons that I've outlined today within that gospel context to care not only for our souls individually, but to love our neighbors as ourselves and to be watchful over our life together.